0: Turn with me to Genesis 1, is where we'll start today. Hopefully I don't need to direct you where to go in your Bible to find Genesis 1. Page 1, okay, page 1, Genesis chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me read to you from 1 Corinthians 6, where we'll end up this morning, starting at verse 15. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? may it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. It should be our life's great work. It should be our passion as Christians to not only understand more about who God is, but to understand more about who we are. We want to understand both, who God is and who we are. And to get that right, you have to start with Genesis. If you lose Genesis 1 and 2, if you lose especially Genesis 1 through 12, you lose the whole Bible. There's nothing left if you lose these opening chapters. There's a reason they're at the beginning. These lay a foundation. They set a framework for everything you need to know from the Word of God. We can't jump ahead with our own assumptions from today's culture, from things that we've learned from those who are not God's people, and say, how can we make the rest of the Bible fit with what we hear in the culture? Christians don't think that way. Christians start with the Word of God, and Christians end with the Word of God when it comes to understanding not only who God is, but who we are. And I want us to see this in one of the most foundational texts in the whole Bible, starting at verse 24 of Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 24, it states Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God God saw that it was good. God created the animals all according to their kind. He did it according to His will. He did it quickly. It's creation. Verse 26, Then, God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. God blessed them and God said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the living and over every living thing that moves on the earth." We see here that after God created the animals, he created man. He created male and female in the image of God. They were not animals. They are not animals. They are human beings who bear God's image, and we see they're given dominion here. They're given dominion over the animals. They're to rule over the animals that exist on the earth. There's an order to this creation. They have authority over the animals. God has given them a particular stewardship over the rest of creation as those who are made in His image. And because they are made in His image, they are the special creation of God. No other creature is made in the image of God. Angels are not made in the image of God. Only male and female human beings are made in the image of God. They're special, they're set apart, and they're to have authority over all things on the earth. Turn a page and go to chapter 2 with me. Chapter 2, starting at verse 21. Chapter 1 of Genesis is a big picture view of creation, and Genesis chapter 2 is more of a microscopic look at what God was doing. We get a very detailed account as to how He created man, and we get this instruction, starting in verse 21 of chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which He had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the foundational text about male female relationships in Scripture. We see this particular text come up multiple times throughout the rest of the Bible because this is God's perfect design. God designed not only them as beings in perfection, but He designed this relationship in perfection. The two become one, it says. They are joined together, verse 24, and they become one flesh. So we learn in Scripture that in the marital relationship and in marital relations, a man and a woman become one. That's what we're going to see in our text today in 1 Corinthians. It's what I read to you in verse 16. Paul quotes this verse, Genesis 2, 24. But as we make our way to 1 Corinthians, I want us to go forward to the New Testament and stop at the book of Mark. Go to the Gospel of Mark with me, and I want you to see Jesus teaching on this verse, Jesus was approached by some Pharisees who were testing him, as they often did. And they wanted to know what Jesus would have to say about divorce. What would be Jesus' opinion about a marriage being broken? He reminds them that there's a command from Moses in the law about this. They know it very well. And so Jesus picks up in verse 5, Mark chapter 10, verse 5. He picks back up and gives them this instruction about that command and about this concept of divorce. Jesus said to them, "'Because of your hardness of heart,' he, Moses, wrote you this commandment. "'But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female.'" Jesus is affirming here the biblical design in creation of human beings being male and female. God didn't make a mistake. He didn't make a woman trapped in a man's body, but He made male and female, and it was good. Verse 7, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Or if you have the King James Version, let no man put asunder. I like that rendering of it. But Jesus here is affirming Genesis, affirming creation as outlined in the very beginning pages of our Bible. He emphasized the unity. Did you catch that? Where He's quoting Genesis, perhaps yours has all caps for when the Old Testament is quoted like mine does. He says in verse 8, the two shall become one flesh, right from Genesis 2.24, and states again, so they are no longer two, but one flesh, emphasizing this aspect of unity, and goes on to say that no other human being, no man, no woman, has the authority to break this union. No one has authority to break the union that's explained here, the union that God gives through marriage. And then Ephesians 5, we're going to go past 1 Corinthians and land at Ephesians 5. One more text. Remember, we're learning what the Bible has to say about who man is, what the whole Bible has to say about who man is. Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 28, the last verses of that chapter. Ephesians chapter 5 starting at verse 28. And remember, this is after the church has been inaugurated. When Jesus was speaking in Mark chapter 10, the church had, had yet begun. Jesus said during His earthly ministry, after His resurrection, He was going to build His church. And this is after the church had already started to be built by Jesus. And Paul is now using an illustration for the church He's taking the male and female union that comes through marriage, and he's using it as an illustration to explain the mystery of the church. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 28. "'So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church.'" because we are members of his body. For this reason, sound familiar? A man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great. But I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Paul is expanding on this concept of unity, and he's tying things together. The human bond in marriage and the bond that Christians have with Christ as head of the church. Remember, this is Paul who got saved on the road to Damascus. He was riding his horse, and he was going out to persecute the church of God. Christians who bore the name of Christ, he was looking to put them to death. If you remember what Jesus said to Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, why are you persecuting the church? He said, why are you persecuting me? There's a bond, a unity that exists between Jesus and His church. The identity is shared. And so as Paul goes to give instructions for marriage, you think he has a deep understanding of these things? There's a bond in marriage. The two become one. There's a shared identity. Paul understood this at a very deep level, an experiential level, as he heard those very words from Jesus. So, the unity that God gives in marital relationships is worthy of the utmost reverence, utmost reverence, because it is a true unity. Unity. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, if you haven't already, 1 Corinthians 6, where we'll be today. And as we consider these things, the unity that comes from a marital relationship is the deepest intimacy one person can have with another. As we share in the identity of another, another human, it only happens here. This is the only place where two truly become one flesh. It's the deepest intimacy we can have. It's true true oneness that occurs when a marriage is consummated. And we're going to be talking a lot about the sexual behavior that exists in marital relationships, and you're all instantly wanting to blush. (laughs) Be thankful you're not up here, okay? (laughs) There's no reason to blush. This is God's good design, isn't it? The two are to be joined together. So, we don't need to blush over these things. Now, I do want to say from the beginning, as we again look to wrap our minds around this human relationship that God has designed, that sexual behavior doesn't make two people married. It's something that follows in a marital union. The act itself does not consummate a marriage, but it is something that should follow a marriage, something that follows a proper wedding, something that follows a proper observance that this relationship has begun. That behavior is reserved for marriage, and it's a misplaced action if it's occurring outside of God's design. It goes against God's design, and it's sinful. I want you to see in chapter 7, maybe just across the page for you, 1 Corinthians 7, chapter 2, We see that marriage clearly is the only outlet for sexual activity. It says in verse 2 because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. Because sexual activity exists outside of marriage and it's immoral and it's sinful, we should see to it that man and woman come together in marriage as the only proper outlet for such behavior. Marriage, of course, is more than just that. There are some young men who get married who think that's all it is, and they are in for a rude awakening, as perhaps some of you have experienced. That marriage is much more than that, but it does include that. The point is addressed here that marriage is the only proper outlet for sexual activity, because the two become one, just as God designed. Our text today also teaches that spiritual oneness occurs through faith in Jesus. There's a one flesh unity that happens through a man and woman getting married and consummating that marriage, but there's a spiritual oneness. Verse 17 says, the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with Him. So, let's think about this for a moment, taking our minds off of human marriage. Becoming a Christian involves the spiritual reality of becoming one with Christ. Becoming a Christian involves believing in Jesus And becoming one with him through faith. This is what some theologians call the mystical union, and it's not called mystical because it's magical or it involves sorcery or anything like that, but because we are just so limited in our language that it's the best word we have for it. Here's a definition of this union given by Louis Burkhoff. He wrote: This union may be defined as that intimate, vital, and spiritual union between Christ and his people in virtue of which He is the source of their life and strength, of their blessedness and salvation. And then think of this final statement here. Every believer is personally united directly to Christ. It's a good sentence. A spiritual union with Christ through faith. By believing in the gospel, there's a oneness that comes between you individually and your Savior. You are one with Jesus. Pretty amazing, isn't it? So as you join yourself to Christ by faith, you're sharing in the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. You bear in you the spirit of God, and in fact, we call you a Christian. Your title has the name of Christ in it. You share in that identity. Not in any sense, you're becoming a God with him. You're sharing in His uh, divinity, and you are' somehow now a divine being. That's not it at all, but your identity is locked in to Christ. You become one with Him. You become one spirit with Him, it says. You have God in your heart. And this occurs at the new birth. When you're born again, when you're born from above, you have God in your heart and you are one spirit with Jesus. John 14, you don't have to turn there, it'll be up on the screen. In John 14, Jesus taught this amazing, amazing doctrine about Him coming into our hearts. John 14, after a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you'll see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, that's important, right? You got to know, two Judases, okay? Good guy, not bad guy. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? I love this. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love Him, and we, capital W, we, will come to Him and make our abode with Him. Become one spirit with Christ through faith. You have Jesus in your heart by faith. You are the abode of God by faith. Isn't that amazing? The house, the temple of God through faith. So our bodies then, as we become believers in Jesus, our bodies become an extension of the ministry of Christ. I spoke last week that statement, we're the hands and feet of Christ. You've probably heard that before. We are an extension of Jesus' ministry. He's in us, working through us, causing us to grow and reach the world. Christ is the head of the body, and we are individual members of it. Look at verse 15 today in our text. 6.15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? We are members of Christ by extension. and We have a profound unity because of this identity we find in Jesus. Now, bringing these two concepts together, the unity that exists in male-female relationships, the unity that exists between that physical or that's a result of that physical consummation, and the unity that we have by being believers in Jesus, by being members of His body, by being an extension of His ministry. What we need to then realize, our text today is telling us, that as these Corinthian believers were going back to their old ways and joining with temple prostitutes, they were joining Christ with them. They were joining Christ with prostitutes. What a horrifying thought. What a terrible, terrible thought. As they have the identity of Christ, the unity of Christ, and they go out and they become one physically with someone else in that activity, what they're doing is they're taking Christ with them. John MacArthur wrote this, "'A Christian who commits sexual immorality involves his Lord.'" Now, you could just stop there and marinate on that for a while, couldn't you? All sex outside of marriage is sin, but when it is committed by believers, it is especially reprehensible because it profanes Jesus Christ, with whom the believer is one. Since we are one with Christ and the sinner is one with his partner, Christ is placed in an unthinkable position in Paul's reasoning. Christ is not personally tainted with the sin any more than the sunbeam that shines on a garbage dump is polluted. But his reputation is dirtied because of the association. Serious sin. We must take this seriously because we are representatives of Christ. We are one with Christ. And when we go out and partake in any type of sinful activity, you're not doing it apart from Jesus, are you? He lives in you. You are His abode. Serious sin. So Christian engagement in sinful sexual behavior truly is an abomination. And the sexual behavior isn't the problem. Marital relations are not the problem. But sexual behavior outside of God's design, outside of marriage, one man, one woman permanently put together, sex outside of that relationship is the problem. It's rebellion, it's sinful, it's wicked, and it's evil. And it destroys For the Corinthians, who were going back to their old habits of joining with prostitutes, these temple prostitutes, not only were they having a relationship with someone who wasn't their spouse, and that's a huge deal, that is adultery, that is sin in and of itself, but the prostitutes weren't Christians. They were going and not only breaking their marriage vows, but they were being joined to lawless ones. They were being joined to pagans. They were being joined to those who promoted a false religion. They were joining Christ with Baal, with idols. We should not pursue any physical unchristian union with another. One man and one woman for life. And God's design is that the man and the woman would be equally yoked, one Christian man and one Christian woman, together for life, till death do they part. When it comes to choosing a spouse, you should pursue being equally yoked. Now, within a marriage, we recognize there are unequally yoked marriages, and we'll get this to this in a couple weeks. You can look at it with me in chapter 7, verse 14. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. There was this interesting position that some of the Corinthians were in where they got saved after they were married. So a Christian was in a covenant with a non-Christian. What were they to do? Well, Paul writes, "...the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy." So, in a situation, a situation such as that, the Christian isn't to leave, the Christian is to remain, and the marital relations aren't sinful, the marital relations are still good in God's design, but it is quite the situation, and many of you know it well. But God's design here is for unity, that the two would become one flesh, spiritually, and that they would be physically joined together and God brings about a profound unity. So as we have this biblical theology in our minds, look again with me at verse 15 of today's text, the second half of it. Do you understand the gravity of this? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. I hope you recognize the weight of that sin. And Paul goes on here today to give us more instruction about this, to give us some basic instruction. But I want to, before we get into that, I want to give us a reality check about where we are in our world. In 1963, a survey was taken about people's views on premarital sex. 1963, that was a different day, wasn't it? Less than 20% of Americans surveyed in 1963 thought premarital sex was acceptable. Today, it depends on the survey you look at, it's a minimum of 75%. See, nothing wrong with it. And some surveys say 90%. Monogamy is becoming quite the issue too. In a recent survey just from a year or two ago, 90% of those who were born before baby boomers, the greatest generation, the silent generation they're sometimes called, In this recent survey, 90% of them said that monogamy was appropriate for marriage. It's the only way you should go about marriage is a monogamous relationship, which seems so obvious to us, doesn't it? But millennials, my generation, only 65% say that's the way it should be. And if you look at each generation surveyed, the percentage goes down with each generation. So, Gen Z, which is the generation to follow, and generations after that, if the trend continues, monogamy will be a thing of the past. Why why would we be monogamous if we're animals, right? But we are created in the image of God. We are different than the animals. We have purpose. We can't give up what Scripture teaches on these things. The culture in Corinth wasn't too different. In fact, they were farther down the road than we are. And so Paul is instructing people of that type of mindset. Paul is giving new believers, baby Christians in that culture, basic instruction about these things. And look what he says in verse 18, flee immorality. As we recognize and understand our union with God as Christians, we can do nothing else but flee immorality. Let me give you a really deep definition for this word flee. It means get out. Get out. Go away. There are words in the New Testament for avoid or refuse, and Paul doesn't use those words. When Paul wrote to the young pastors, Timothy and Titus, he used those words to avoid or to refuse, When it came to foolish controversies, to Timothy, avoid foolish controversies, to Titus, refuse (laughs) all this idle chatter. That's what you do when you're on a diet, right? You avoid or refuse. You're at the dinner table and you're at someone's house and they bring out this really decadent, buttery, flaky, sweet on the tongue dessert you avoid, you sidestep, you refuse. But what if you got up and ran out of the house? <laughs> That's fleeing, right? It's not avoiding or refusing, it's fleeing. So as we think in the Old Testament, Joseph, Joseph was put in a compromising position in the final chapters of Genesis. Potiphar's wife wanted to frame him make it look like they were together. She wanted to pursue that relationship, and then there he would be in the act. Joseph fled. He ran away. He didn't just refuse. He left. But David lingered, didn't he? David didn't flee. David lingered. We're told here, flee immorality. Flee like Joseph. Don't linger like David. David. We flee this sin because it's important that we do, because sexual immorality is a particularly harmful sin. Paul gives us a very interesting statement in verse 18, every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Now, you can sit around for hours like I did this week trying to figure out what that means, and you're not going to come to any satisfying conclusions. But there are some things that I can point to and say, I think this is what Paul had in mind, and we'll just have to be content with that. Immoral sexual behavior infects a person's spirit in a profound way. Those of you in this room who have struggled with that sin know this very well. It becomes a very difficult habit to break. It ruins, destroys your prayer life. It makes you feel so guilty, so dirty that you couldn't go back to God. It makes you feel like a fraud, and you don't even feel worthy of reading your Bible. It infects, not just effects, or I guess it would be aphex in this case, a person's, but it infects a person's spirit. Secondly, when it comes to this and there are no additional tools or substances needed. You might think drunkenness, you know, put drunkenness in here. Isn't Drunkenness, that's something that's against our own body. That's not committed outside of the body. Well, I think part of the reason that Paul has here is that we don't need anything outside of us for this. This is something that comes up from within and can be acted on from within. And in a heartbeat, you're there. It's against your own body. And thirdly, unlike murder or suicide, the body lives on with these effects. You could put suicide in here. Well, isn't that a sin that's committed against the own body? Yes, it is. Again, you need an additional tool or a substance of some sort. But unlike suicide, you live on with these effects. You live on with the impact of this sin. It lingers. It follows. It stays with you. And it really harms you spiritually. These factors make it unlike other transgressions, makes it a particularly harmful sin. And He intensifies the issue by giving us another spiritual reality in verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is a temple, a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Paul is speaking of us individually here. Earlier in this book, back in chapter 3, Paul talked about the church gathered as a temple for God, and that's true. As we come together, we don't need to invite the Holy Spirit, do we? That's become a popular practice in many churches, to invite God to show up as if He wasn't here and as if He was waiting on our invitation. When we come together as believers, God is here among us. He's with us. He's working through us. We don't need to ask the Holy Spirit to show up and do a a mighty work. The Holy Spirit's already here doing a mighty work. Yet there's also the reality where we individually are filled with the Spirit. This text that we've been reading here this morning is about individual behavior, individual sexual behavior. And here, as he's giving these truths, he says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple? You individually, as a Christian, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And I love that our text doesn't say, Do you not know that you are a temple of a portion of the Holy Spirit? I love this doctrine that the believer has 100% God of the universe dwelling within. And again, we have to distinguish this isn't we're becoming one with Him in that now we are divine because we have the fullness of God just as Jesus had the fullness of God or something like that. That's not the case. The two don't blend in such a way that we become little gods. However, the reality remains that if you are a Christian born from above, you have been born again by the Holy Spirit, and He doesn't leave after He does that. But He remains in you. God in you. Remember Jesus with the capital W, we? We come and make our abode in you. An amazing thought. When we think of Israel and their temples, there are a couple things we can point out. Number one, temples don't get their value by external adornment, do they? Temples derive their value by what dwells within. Show me a beautiful temple that costs millions of dollars And I don't care if it's full of demons. If it has demons that are full of it, I don't care how pretty it is. I don't care how beautiful it is. I don't care if you can think it's so beautiful that you want to take a picture of it and put it on your wall. If Jesus isn't there, it's not beautiful at all, is it? And also, as we think of Israel's experience, God, of course, did indeed dwell in their temples… And there was a special place within the temple called the Most Holy Place. And it could only be entered into once a year. One time a year at Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And there was only one person in Israel who could go into that holy place that one time a year. Very exclusive club, isn't it? (laughs) Only one person, one day a year, into that place. There he would go, he would make atonement for the people on the altar before God. But now, something better than the temple has come. Jesus has come, hasn't He? Jesus has come and He's fulfilled all those ceremonies. He's fulfilled them completely so that we don't need to do them again. And through that fulfillment, listen to this, that holy place has been taken from the temple and placed in you. It's no longer a place outside of us that one person can go to one time a year. It's that place inside of you that dwells in you constantly. You have the presence of God fully, forever. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, our bodies are to be sanctified and revered. Our bodies are to be protected from these things. I want want us to look into one of the most dramatic events in Israel's history. I'll read it to you from the book of Ezra. As the temple restoration was beginning after the Babylonian captivity, in Ezra chapter 3, it says this as they're rebuilding the temple. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple... Wept. They wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Look at how they are reacting to the temple. Just a physical temple made with human hands. But God was going to dwell within. They were going to have their priests go make atonement again before the altar. They were going to have that special bond, that special connection with God again. That was the way Israel was constructed. They were to have that special relationship with God through the temple. But now something better than the temple is here. What if Christians considered their bodies so reverently? So they took it so seriously that the way they lived would be reflected like the way these Israelites were rejoicing just to a foundation. We look at that and see how deeply they cared about the temple. What if Christians cared about the temple of their bodies? What if Christians cared about the choices they made in their bodies? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. In the context of this, remember, is sinful sexual behavior. Think of the horrifying news we've been hearing lately, Ravi Zacharias, or whoever it may be, caught in this scandal, that scandal. When we think, how could a pastor, or how could an apologist, or a Christian author, how could someone like that be? in that type of sin. We just think that is extra gross or extra immoral. Or what if that action was to take place in a church building? Heaven forbid, you would think. But you are a temple. All those emotions that get riled up by the place or the person, all that pales in comparison to the fact that the Holy Spirit is in you. It's just as egregious for any Christian to commit such sin. Because the Lord is dwelling within. That person has become one with Christ. Paul states to them plainly, You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The title of the sermon today says, Your Body, His Choice. Well, it's not really your body, is it? You are not your own. Christianity has always been countercultural. This was a very countercultural thought for the Corinthians. And boy, is it a countercultural thought today. My body, my choice. How often do we see that proclaimed everywhere? My body, my choice. For the Christian, you are not your own. You were bought, you were purchased, you were ransomed, you were redeemed. You were bought with a price. Jesus purchased you on the cross. He died in your place for your sins, ransoming you from the wrath to come, purchasing His enemies at an infinite cost, causing you no longer to be slaves of sin, but joyfully slaves of the perfect Master, King Jesus. You are not your own. You were bought, bought with a price. And therefore, your purpose is to glorify God, not in words only or not in thoughts That's easy, isn't it? It's easy to say things or to affirm a good statement. It's easy to check that box that says, I've read all the terms and conditions, isn't it? You never read it, neither do I. That's easy. But you were purchased that you would glorify God in your bodies with the choices you make. You've been set free in the gospel to honor God and to serve others. Should you take your body, which is Christ's, and misuse it? Heaven forbid. Should you take your body, which belongs to Jesus, and join it to a prostitute? That's the question today. May it never be. Because you were not freed in order to sin. You were freed not to sin. You were freed that you might walk in righteousness and have newness of life. And God is faithful. God's faithful to change you, to change your thinking on these issues. Some of you have passed full of all kinds of sexual sin. And there are just all kinds of thought patterns psychologically that have gone in the wrong direction. God is faithful to redeem you and to redeem your thinking, and to conform you, to change you, to make you like His Son, Jesus. God forgives you of those things, and He changes you going forward. And God is faithful to protect us moving forward. God is faithful to protect us from these things that we would so easily fall into on our own. He empowers us by His Spirit and causes us to flee when we need to flee. He's faithful to do that. And God is faithful to protect our children. God's faithful to do whatever He wants in our children's lives. We we look around at the world today, and, and I know for myself, I think, where are my children going to find a spouse? I mean, Bible college used to be the, the go to, but I doubt when they're that age, Bible colleges will even exist. How is it going to happen? By the power of the faithful God. That's how it's going to happen, because God is faithful to protect them and to make a way for them and to cause them to be joined to the right person. So let's have confidence in God today. Let's, of course, be renewed in our thinking and be motivated to glorify God with our bodies, but let's also be confident that God can and will do it, okay? There's a way forward. There's a way forward through Jesus. Lord, thank you so much for how you have redeemed us and you've already started a marvelous work in us. We look forward to the day of glory when all sin will be done away with, when we won't have to have these types of conversations anymore, when we will just be as you are without any spot or stain of sin. We look forward to such a day. Yet in the meantime, Lord, we ask that you would do a mighty work in us and through us that you would cause us to bring honor to your name as we represent you sharing in your identity as we've been made one spirit with you. Give us eyes that see and ears that hear that our feet would be quick to run toward holiness for your namesake. And we ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.